0: There's got to be some balance, you know, You can't taking on a project that you never finish is obviously not not ideal. When I do approach something like writing a, a book or uh, in filmmaking, these are big opportunities. These are not things to do in a slapdash way or a sloppy way. In the time that you've got available and within the constraints of everything else that might be on your plate, you have to give it your all. You have to make it the best it can possibly be with the resources that, that you have.
1: That was Dr. Clive Oppenheimer, and this is the Natural Born Thinkers podcast. Hello everyone, and welcome to Natural Born Thinkers, a podcast designed to help you live a more creative lifestyle. My name is Sam Hunter, and my job is to help people tap into their creative potential to solve their biggest individual and business challenges. I set up this podcast to reveal the secret source behind the creative thinking process and to provide a perspective on how we can live a life that enables us to more confidently draw upon our natural creativity. I believe that our minds are all uniquely wired to think differently and that the world depends on our diverse creative potential. When envisioning the types of guests it would be great to get on this podcast, it never occurred to me that I would be able to find them all in one person. Today's guest is a scientist, author, and movie maker. And he also just happens to be my uncle, Dr. Clive Oppenheimer. Clive is a professor in volcanology at the University of Cambridge. He has studied volcanoes for most of his professional career and wrote a book, Eruptions That Shook the World in 2011, which explores volcanoes and how they have shaped humanity and the world. This book was ultimately the inspiration behind his first movie, Into the Inferno, which was directed by Werner Herzog. Clive was somewhat an international man of mystery to me when I was growing up, and it's great to have him on this podcast to explore his career and insights into how to think differently. In our conversation, Clive discusses his approach to discovery and problem solving, how to position yourself for creative serendipity, the importance and role of a mentor in your creative journey, and how to create and balance time to deliver your creative ambitions. In addition, Clive shares how he was able to make his successful transition from scientist to movie maker. His first movie, Into the Inferno, was nominated for an Oscar, and his second movie, Fireball, has also been well received by critics. Clive's story shows that asking lots of different questions, challenging assumptions, being curious and open minded can all help propel you on a journey of discovery. In addition, his experience shows that mastery of a topical skill can be a platform of creative opportunity where you have the courage to connect and apply your knowledge in new ways and places. Clive has certainly opened my eyes to the adventure that life can be, and I hope you will find something in here to help you with your creative ambitions. Welcome, Dr. Clive Oppenheimer.
0: Thank you, Sam.
1: It's always a pleasure when we get to connect. And in fact, as I was preparing for the podcast, I had to go on to Google and do some research on your career, as to me, you've always just been my Uncle Clive. And as I was mentioning earlier, just before we got going, I did a podcast the other week with a friend of mine, where we explored how the experiences from your past shape your values and personality, as well as... We talked about how it also framed up your approach and belief in creativity. So with that in mind, I took a moment to reflect on my experience of you as a child. And I realized that you've probably had quite a large impact on my creativity. So firstly, whenever we had a family occasion, you were either always just going somewhere, which was very exotic to a 10-year-old or like a young girl growing up, or you would just come back from somewhere. To me, you always wore funky patterned shirts. And this was like back in the 80s. And I don't think that fashion was as loud as it is today. (laughs) Um, Your house was Full of beautiful and exotic rocks, masks and paintings. So I guess you opened my eyes at a very young age to how diverse the world is. And your pioneering spirit showed me that life can be an adventure of your design. And you also introduced me, most importantly, to the idea of putting yoghurt on top of your muesli in the morning. And I appreciate (laughs) that's not necessarily a creative invention, but I saw you do it first and I've never looked back. (laughs) So... That's how you have influenced me in my life <laughs> and my breakfast.
0: <laughs> it sounds like having me as an uncle is either going to completely freak out a small kid, or or they they roll with it. So I'm glad you rolled with it.
1: I rolled with it. I definitely did. Um, and I guess you, you know anyone could go to Google and get a definitive, crisp insight to your career with a full lowdown on everything that you have done. But I thought it might be more interesting to ask you the question to say, how might you describe your professional self and your career in a nutshell, just to kick off a, a quick introduction?
0: Yes. Well, well first, thank, thanks so much for um, inviting me to the podcast. It, it's a, it's an honour and a treat. In a nutshell, my work is in volcanology, studying volcanoes. I came into that through a degree in geology and was most interested in geology that's happening now. So I was also very, very interested in earthquakes early on. And my, my research falls into two broad areas. One is connected with understanding how volcanoes work through measuring, measuring things that you can observe at the surface, so uh, gas emissions, heat emissions, and using those data to try and figure out what the plumbing system of a volcano looks like and how it operates and why a volcano erupts in a particular way. And the other part of my research is looking at large eruptions of the past and uh, digging into the impacts they've had on on the climate, on environment and on human society. So very large eruptions um, can put a lot of uh, sulfur gas into the stratosphere. It makes small particles reflect a bit of sunlight back into space, which has a cooling effect on the ground and potentially at at a a global scale. And this can have knock-on effects for agriculture and thereby on society. Uh, so those are the two main two main domains that I've been working in over the last 20 years or so.
1: Great. No, thank you. It's it's funny, actually, because whenever I um, say, oh, my uncle is a volcanologist, people will do a double take. They, they'll either, well, I guess they'll respond in one of two ways. One is they'll know immediately, oh, he studies volcanoes, or the other way will be volcanologists and they have to process that for a while. Some people will make the leap or other people wait for me to be in, yes, he studies volcanoes. and And it's interesting because I think you know, we're, I guess living in the UK, we don't have any active volcanoes. So I think for some maybe out of sight, out of mind, until we obviously see it on the news when there's been a big eruption. People don't often stop to think about how the, those eruptions from the past that you mentioned have actually shaped the earth and the way that we live, even in countries where we don't have live volcanoes, if that makes sense. So it's funny how when they're not there and they're not active and not, not exploding, people don't really reflect on how they might have shaped the way we're living today.
0: Um, yes, certainly uh, thinking back to, to parties as a PhD student, if I said I was a volcanologist, people either wouldn't believe me or, or they would think <laughs> I was some kind of extreme Trekkie following every going on in the Star Trek world. So I, I used to actually say I was an accountant, which was a sort of much easier <laughs> uh, route <laughs> kind of social interaction. But you're right. I think, you know, there are obviously lots and lots of things to think about in the world. And particularly when you live in the UK, we're by and large remote from volcanic activity. I guess the Ejafjalljö eruption in Iceland in 2010, that, you know, did give us all pause to think about our interconnected world and how, in this case, actually a relatively modest sized eruption can bring about global chaos. And in, in fact, I... I remember, uh, particularly, you know, this, this was driven home to me because you called me up and asked me whether you whether I thought it was a good idea to rebook your um, the vacation that you planned. And, and, you know, you just you just realised
1: I was going to the Cayman Islands.
0: <laughs> you just realised I was very upset. Yeah, and I, I don't think I gave you very good advice but anyway.
1: And I think you told me how it was, which was very important.
0: <laughs> I, I probably probably mentioned that it's, it's not good to get ash in a, in a jet engine, but. Uh, yeah, certainly when, when we look back um, with a, a historical lens, there are large eruptions uh, like Krakatau in 1883, the 1815 eruption of Tambora also in Indonesia, which have changed the global climate, particularly in the case of Tambora. Uh, it's quite quite a strong argument linking the climatic effects to poor harvests and, and social unrest. And... and what, what for me is very interesting is that this is a topic this is really about digging into history and it's and it's bringing a sort of understanding of climate and an understanding of volcanism to contribute to interpreting history and what what becomes then very very valuable and, and critical really is is to have a dialogue with historians who know also about all the other things that are going on in the world in a particular time you know in terms of economics politics and culture uh, so that's a great one of the things i love about the work I do is that it's it's become very interdisciplinary, and so a lot of the the work I'm involved in is at the interfaces between disciplines, and and not just within the sciences, but between sciences, social sciences, and humanities. No, it's
1: it's 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 really fascinating, and it seems like obviously in science and in. In like if we go into the business world industries particularly the healthcare industry are becoming much more intertwined because I, I think that's the the way the world needs to be connected and collaborative particularly in the face of natural disaster and i guess looking at coronavirus right now it's you know that's it's mother nature as well in a in a different form making an impact which we have to learn to live with and adapt and this this is not the first time humanity's had to adapt to a change in circumstance. I guess we've got as you said you've got the looking first and foremost at the plumbing of the volcanoes and how they work and behave and then the the historical component of volcanoes and and how that shaped humanity and societies and obviously you're not an accountant (laughs) Um, and um (laughs) my dad is (laughs) Um, and he didn't wear funky shirts so (laughs) I wouldn't have believed you for a second but for those that thought you were joking or whatever and couldn't imagine it can you provide an overview for us or just give us a feel for what a day in the life of a volcanologist might look like whilst in the field because I know you obviously you have the um, teaching component of what you do but and we'll get there too but let's just talk about life on the volcano.
0: Uh, Yeah. before i get to that just to comment on the the loud shirts i i was accosted by a film crew in the street once uh in cambridge and they they were very complimentary about my attire and said you know do you mind if we just talk to you i realized afterwards it was one of those um show it's probably been seen on on aircraft you know sort of uh, look at this plonk is uh extremely inappropriate clothing anyway so day in the life yeah Field, field work is i guess you know i'd i'd say that's my, my forte that's the the skill uh, i think i have is to be observant and when when you go up, go to an active volcano you don't know for sure what the volcano is going to be doing on a on a given day uh, and you you don't know what the weather is going to be doing and i'm i'm up there you know at the edge of the crater often with various kinds of spectrometers uh, that might be pointed at uh, for example on on Erebus in Antarctica we we point our spectrometers at the lava lake to measure the gas emissions from it second by second and we have to be very very flexible the environment is often kind of working against you there's nowhere to plug your equipment into the main so you've, you've got to think about everything you've got to be very self-sufficient and if you know you set the equipment up and then suddenly the wind changes direction and you you get a blast of toxic gases and uh you know then you've Just just got to move everything and and figure out a a different strategy. I describe it as a very embodying experience because you're very aware of everything going on in the environment, what the volcano is doing. You're very attentive to how the equipment is working, how the data look. Do the data look of good quality? Because you know, particularly going somewhere like Antarctica, it's it's a long, awfully long way to go. It's a big investment of time and and funding, and so you, you you know you want to make the absolute most of of that window of opportunity. In Antarctica, we're, we're camping up there as well. We're camping at three and a half thousand meters on a remote Antarctic volcano. So again, it's it's a very, very different experience from being at home, teaching, doing university administration. Yes. <laughs> the other thing about that, actually, which is, it, is very wonderful, is you're very much part of a community. In that case, we're, we're working uh, typically for about... Um, a month or so in in the field camp, maybe with 10 of us. So there's a, a lot of joy in that kind of community spirit and community living and looking after each other uh, that that you kind of forget about in your your everyday life.
1: There's and there's a lot in what you just said that it would be great to to unpack a bit as we as we explore the impact on thinking differently and, and creatively. But just to lay it out, you literally are going in freezing degree temperatures up remote volcanoes at the end of the world well in Antarctica. And the equipment you carry is not light, is it? <laughs> it's what well, it's, it's heavy stuff that you're lugging up a volcano that could essentially erupt or as you say have a gas emission at any time and uh, you know it's extreme extreme discovery
0: <laughs> yeah the, the the equipment certainly is uh, we we tend to call it um, transportable rather than than portable
1: <laughs> yes it can be done
0: <laughs> it can yeah it can be done i mean we ultimately we need to be able to carry stuff because um, I mean, for example, again in Antarctica, we we can't um, even though we have snow machines, we can get pretty close to the top, but we, you, you've still got to hike the last half a kilometer. So equipment does need to be as as portable as possible, and and the environment, you know, it, it can be, it actually can be quite benign. I mean, I've worked I've worked a lot in in Italy, southern Italy, working in in the Aeolian Islands, for instance, where we have the eponymous volcano Vulcano and Stromboli. I've also worked on Etna. And you know, in this case, uh it's possible to have your lunch in a nice pizza restaurant and uh you know plan your day's work uh in in a in a very comfortable environment. But at the extreme end, yes, there's there's Antarctica or there's working in in the Danakil Desert, uh in very, very high temperatures or in, in very humid parts of the world. So I think it helps that I'm I'm relatively well adapted to extremes of environment. Um what I struggle a bit more with actually is is the sort of uh, the British? Climate. Yeah,
1: well, I mean, it's it's so great because you you really are like if you break it down to the essence and you take away, I guess, the the well, even if you keep keeping a science, you're like a real adventurer. I was I was talking with Mum again, another another research source for this, so your sister, <laughs> and um, she said that your fascination with rocks and the earth and landscape came. From visiting museums as a young boy, if you reflect back to that time, can you remember any particular moment or an experience when you you fell in love with geology, or is this a gradual thing that happened over time?
0: Going going back into my childhood, that's I think that's absolutely right. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in London, and the Geological Museum really fascinated me. I, I couldn't say exactly from what age; I'd say somewhere between eight eight and ten. But I remember, you know, just marveling at the cabinets full of exceptional gemstones, you know, huge opals and gold nuggets, and there was a rock, a, a radioactive rock with a Geiger counter on it. And I, I think, um, you know, it's, it's probably the aesthetic appeal of these these natural minerals and rocks that that really really struck me. And I got into geology, I guess, at that that kind of age. And it connects, of course, with fossils and dinosaurs, which I guess, you know, most kids go through that stage. Yeah. <laughs> you know, growing up in London, there wasn't a whole lot of opportunity for geology. So we used to go on holiday in Sussex on the South Coast. And, you know, there, I think I, I just developed a real love for the, the outdoors and, and the, the countryside and the, the coast. And I suppose, you know, also more generally, I was, I was very interested in in nature, you know, looking for bugs and insects and, and so on and so i think that that's where kind of i developed my skills in observation. and observation and curiosity you know again all kids are naturally curious you know all kids are scientists and then i think for for many you know something happens after eight nine years old i, and I you know i can't put my finger on what it is but all kids you know we, we all start out as intensely curious about about the world around us and I I stayed with this sort of interest in, in geology through school, and I never I never really had any I mean I applied to read geophysics uh, or geology at university, so I'd never I'd never formulated a, an alternative strategy or idea of, of where I would go. Um, but at that stage, I had no idea it would take me to to volcanoes. That, that was sort of a, I would say somewhat more more by chance
1: because you did your degree in natural sciences at cambridge and then i know that you read peter francis's volcanoes textbook on your on the plane on your gap year on the way to indonesia and this was the i guess the start of your the serendipitous landing into your profession as a volcanologist is that right
0: (laughs) yes that's right i i I had a, a long reading list before going up to university. And I think the only title I chose was uh, this book, Volcanoes by Peter Francis. And Indonesia, of course, has many, many volcanoes. So, uh, You know, pretty much every day I'd uh, look out of the window and see a volcano or, or go and climb one. And, you know, I, I, I read the book uh, and thoroughly enjoyed it. It's uh, fantastically well written. And I would annotate diagrams in it with, with uh, you know, similar landscapes. I was seeing in front of my eyes, and I guess I, I kind of shelved, I shelved that experience to an extent. And there was not a lot of volcanology in my undergraduate degree, uh, so I actually came without, out of that planning to go into seismology, studying earthquakes. And after a couple more years on the road, I, I was again applying for PhD topics, PhD studentships, and by uh, there was there was one advertised working at the Open University with Peter Francis. Um, and David Rothery. And I I didn't know a lot about volcanoes. I really thought very carefully. Uh, I, I, I guess I did see it as a kind of turning point. And, um, you know, for, for, for various reasons, I came down to go in the direction that I knew very little about. I didn't look back. I just, I just you know, as soon as I started that PhD, I was uh, just very captivated by the whole topic.
1: But well, that's really interesting itself, actually, because I think, I mean, we don't often sit down and take the time to reflect on those moments you, you know when your life could go one way or the other and think about you know our reasoning why and i think just what you shared there is so you had like you had seismology where you'd been spending more time and knew more about and then volcanoes um which obviously you'd read about but there was a lot of there were more unknowns in what you would have to do and and what you might have to use to to study, and it's interesting that you chose to take the road least traveled to you at that point. Can you put your finger on what was it? Just this curiosity again, this curiosity factor, or the sense of adventure that you think might have taken you that way?
0: Uh, as I say, I, thought, I I really thought carefully about it. You know, I did not not in a in a sort of prevaricating way, but I you know I was quite focused. I I really thought through the pros and cons of each. Each project, but I, I also consulted a few people. I consulted a, one of my former professors in in Cambridge, and and I, I found it very helpful actually to take advice. I just felt that this project would get me, you know, both into into a you know very particular area of geoscience, volcanoes, but also I would learn a very new skill which involved. Remote sensing and uh, image processing. I spent, you know, a lot of time, some time in the field, but also a lot, a lot of time in front of um, a workstation, uh, trying to measure temperatures of volcanoes from space. So I think it was those combination things. I just, I just saw a lot, you know, a lot of potential in that, in that area, and I, I'm sure, you know, I've been perfectly happy in in seismology as well. But it's, it's a bit easier to to see an erupting volcano. It's a bit difficult to get to an earthquake. Until after it's happened.
1: In a in moment, yeah. yeah. You probably don't want to be there in a the moment if you no. didn't have to be. But, well, to go and study it, that is. You're at this moment where you come to volcanology. And, you know, that's where you've been, as you say, for the last 20 years or so. When I was doing research on you, I found that you'd done a QA for Wired magazine and you'd highlighted that the problems that you're trying to solve in volcanology are the same problems of 100 years ago. And that the data gathered is not necessarily conclusive or set in stone. So I found it really interesting. How do you innovate your approach to study century-old problems in in new ways?
0: Yeah, so I'd I even say two, you know, more than two centuries ago, uh, I've, I've really got quite interested in uh, the history of our our science, and, and particularly from the the aspect of making field observations. The fundamental questions don't go away. You know, why? why why did that volcano just erupt? When it did, uh, what triggered it? And you know, the, the fundamental problem there is that you're trying to understand something that you can't directly observe. Uh, a lot of the action is going on uh, quite deep in the Earth's crust. Uh, very, very, very complex processes, and so our observations of those processes are made indirectly by what we can measure or sense at, at the surface or model computationally or mathematically. So the the questions don't go away. The techniques we have develop and improve, they include both the sort of observational capabilities, seismology is advanced, uh, remote sensing techniques, use of of robotics uh, to collect data. Also in the laboratory, I mean, there there are more and more possibilities using very high energy radiation sources. For example, at uh, synchrotron facilities, it's now possible to make measurements of things at uh, an unbelievably small scale you know looking at a, a tiny part of a mineral in a, a chunk of pumice measurements that couldn't have been made you know 10-15 years ago so these you know the, the, the data proliferate and um the, the the theories develop um but it's it's still you know really hard answers on things are are elusive and of course the other side of volcanology is the practical side i mean one is you know, how do volcanoes work? The other is how how do we protect populations from the threat of volcanoes? And uh, you know this is now partly about monitoring volcanoes, which is one of the reasons why we want to be able to do this from space using satellite remote sensing. It's about forecasting and having models and frameworks to do that. Uh, but of course, it's also about people. It's about society. It's about politics and economics and culture. And so now you have a, a very, very complex problem Um uh, you know, as 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 we see in other kinds of risk that that society faces, there are there aren't you know ob- obvious answers. And you know, when when you think about in the case of a volcano, do you evacuate half a million people on the basis of some tentative forecasts, incomplete data? Given the ramifications that will have, you know, th- these these are very difficult problems to tackle.
1: Just thinking on on what you were saying about the complexity of the the volcano and the the questions that you're having to ask there's there's the the question of like why did the volcano go off and obviously you can't get that information in the moment as you say you have to retrospectively go and take a look but there's also the how can we predict if one's going to go off um with the the sensing capability can i guess if we think also about the human body, like why does someone get sick? Why has someone developed a particular illness? Yes, you can diagnose it to a point, but sometimes there isn't necessarily an answer. So do you, do you think that with the study of volcanology, what is the question that you're really trying to get an answer to? And do you think that you can always get an answer, I guess, is a question? Or do you think it will always keep keep on going for another hundred years? Oh, for
0: sure. I mean, there, you know, there are... Of course, there are you know many many questions. Um, some of them are are more fundamental you know, to how what it what it is a what is it to be a planet? Um, how do planets work? Uh, what, what, what's the evolution of planets and their atmospheres, which is you know intimately tied into volcanism. Volcanoes emit gases which produce the primary atmosphere of, of the Earth. And there are more far more applied questions, as you say, about uh, forecasting volcanic activity and applying that in civil protection those those questions I I'm, I'm sure we will still be addressing those questions in a hundred years time the complexity of a volcano is phenomenal and part of that is because you know the the, the fuel of eruptions magma molten rock is, a, is an exceedingly complex substance it has the three phases of matter it has crystals in it so it has solid it has a liquid part. Uh, the molten silicate liquid, and it has uh, gas bubbles in it. And so those three components already, this is not uh, an easy fluid to model or to study. Uh, Then you have to factor in that in the Earth's crust, it's under very high pressure. And as it ascends, various things start happening to it. It might crystallize some more. You might get more gas. And so all the time, the behavior of this material is changing. Uh, This is extremely difficult to model mathematically or computationally. And there are a whole bunch of other factors, external factors, factors of the state of stress in the Earth's crust, and so on, that make this a very, very difficult problem to constrain. You know, will, will this volcano erupt or not? And, and you know, ultimately, there are there are parts of this problem that we can engage with by making better observations, by reducing the uncertainty uh, and errors on our observations, by improving our models. But there is a randomness to uh, magmatic and volcanic processes that no amount of new knowledge is going to eliminate. So there will always be this kind of uncertainty, what, what's known as aleatoric uncertainty, the, the uncertainty of the role of the dice.
1: I think what's really interesting as you talk about this, because obviously I, I'm not going to be able to, to relate as a, as a scientist, but as um, trying to observe this from a thinking differently and creative thinking perspective. It seems as though you shared that the technology is advancing, which allows you to get deeper and more into a volcano or different spaces than you ever have before, which enriches the data set you have to work with. But with that increased data It seems to also come hand in hand with an heightened sense of curiosity and more exploding out the questions. So asking new questions, bigger questions. And as you shared at the beginning of this, interconnected questions, not just looking at it in a volcano space, but its connectivity to society, humanity and space, as you mentioned, planets just then. So if we are to take an insight from the scientific world, it's if you want to change the way you want to think about something, you want to have a more creative insight. There's a piece about observing and learning and increasing your data set and then changing, being adaptable and flexible around the questions that you ask yourself as well.
0: I think that's pretty much the way I operate. And uh, I I quite often go into fieldwork with, without a, a set hypothesis that I'm trying to test. I'm going to make the best observations I can to try and understand things. And quite a good example actually is is going back to Antarctica and to Erebus volcano, this nearly 4,000 meter high mountain uh, in Antarctica on Ross Island. It has in its summit crater a lava lake. So this is um, a crater about half a kilometer across at 300 meters down on the floor of the crater sits a 40 meter sized lava lake which which just bubbles away and by making very careful observations we noticed that the gas emission changes in a cyclic way with a period of about 10 minutes and and then we noticed that the lava lake was also going up and down in phase with these cycles in the gas chemistry and this is very very puzzling why why you know the volcano way it's 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 kind of breathing Um, why does it have this behavior why is it a ten minute cycle? Why isn't it a half hour cycle or one minute cycle? And, and immediately you know you have by not being able to answer those questions, you're highlighting some quite fundamental gaps in in knowledge about how volcanoes work. So you know once you've recognized that then you think, well, okay, uh, here's half a dozen possible explanations. I can't rule any of these out at the moment. What new observations will I need to make to start to eliminate some of these possible? explanations and try and narrow down to what's going on and I think you know that that's how this um, as, as you were saying how the the research the observation the thinking it goes hand in hand with then elaboration of experimental design and you know trying trying always to to sharpen our understanding of what we're seeing in the natural world
1: and I know um, and I hope you don't mind me saying as I know that Erebus I, I think it's your favorite volcano right that you that you spend a lot of time on
0: it's a special one
1: yes (laughs) yes and so i guess i i asked this next question i guess somewhat asking to remove your your volcano bias but what is the your most favorite breakthrough that you've made in your studies was it finding out that Erebus has a heartbeat or can breathe the way you, you shared? Or are there other ones that are as special to you?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. I, d- I don't know. I don't know, really. I've got a, a favourite breakthrough. I think, um, I mean, it's a question certainly I got asked, you know, as a, finishing my PhD and trying to find a, a postdoc, you know, what, what was the most exciting part of your PhD thesis? Um, and that's now a standard question. Uh, I would ask in any interview. Back then, it was quite easy to, to come up with a, a response. I think, you know, for me, you know, there there are many rewards of of the work. One actually is that, of course, you're working working with PhD students, you're working with postdoctoral researchers who are at the very beginnings of their careers, and so you know, they're often the, they they're the ones making the breakthroughs, and the, the reward is. Is being a part of that and being a guide and and a mentor for young early career researchers who are going to do great things in the future. I mean, certainly, working on Erebus was sensational for me in in every way. And I did, you know, I've done thirteen field seasons down there, so it's it became just where I expected to be around Christmas time every year. Obviously, we go down in the in the austral summer, Uh, and and I think, you know, as you say, recognizing. At the, when I when I when I was working there, when we discovered this cycle, I mean, people had been working on on the volcano since 1970, and right up at the crater's edge, no one had ever noticed that the lava lake goes up and down by a meter or two every 10 minutes. If you just stand there, you know, and watch it in real time, you don't you don't you're too far away, and it's it's a process. It's it's just sort of beyond human perception. When I saw it in the data, in in uh, initially in in gas measurements, measurements of the sulfur. And uh, carbon and uh, chlorine concentrations in the gas emissions, second by second. When I saw it, this pattern, I actually couldn't believe it. I thought, you know, this uh, is—it's an artifact. I'm seeing this signal because of something else that's going on. And and I, you know, I really had to rip the data apart. And uh, you know, eventually, there was no other way to explain it. And then, as we started adding other observation techniques we saw the same cycle in completely different independent observations so you know it's was, it was certainly a very very robust feature of of the volcano so yeah that that was that was certainly hugely exciting and um i i still don't have an explanation for it uh, so it's you know a, a real enigma
1: it's your 14th yeah. field study
0: <laughs> <laughs> i'm i'm ready to go back at a moment's notice yeah <laughs>
1: think I'd come to actually <laughs> just to just to, to, the ability to get moving again <laughs> I think uh, two things so I you know they say either you're good at maths or you're good at languages where maths in, in it's own right to me is is a language. Um but I was definitely on the arts side of things if I reflect on my skill sets. And so I'm I'm just envisioning and imagining these charts that you're getting of all this data that you've recorded. And I'm asking myself the question, like do these patterns in this data reveal themselves to you in an obvious way or do you have to apply some techniques in how you observe do you have to look at it in different directions is it comparative Like, is there a trick to the trade if you will to help you think differently or see this data in front of you in a new way uh
0: so i'd start by saying actually i, I was good at neither math mathematics or all the arts uh but but uh but inter- you know i guess interested in in both i don't i don't think there are any particular tricks of the trade, other than to be, you know, in a way, I suppose, sort of quite obsessive about the analysis of data, the the way I spotted the pattern. I, if if I can't see something with my own eyes, then it's hard for me to believe. So if, yes, there are all kinds of very fancy statistical techniques that will pull apart a time series of data, so you know, measurements made through time, and and analyze them and find, look for frequencies. That will always give give a result. Um, but if I can't then look at the raw data and see, yeah, oh yeah, now I can see there is a ten-minute cycle. Then it's it's not something I find e- easy to uh, accept. So I've described the field work and you know, a bit about what it's like being in the field. Uh, it's it's a lot of fun. It's a, a pretty intense experience. Um, it is the the tip of the iceberg because when you come back home, you now have. Millions of data points, and it, it, it's it's just an you know for me it's an awful lot of time sitting with uh, spreadsheets, plotting graphs, and just being very exhaustive, very systematic, plotting everything against everything, being completely open to the possibility that there is a pattern in in the data that you would never have anticipated, or that you've detected a gas molecule you would never have expected to be coming out of the lava lake. So. It's it's very much I think about ripping a data set apart, you know, really mining it,
1: uh,
0: and, mm-hmm. and uh, piecing it back well, together. Yes, yeah, which is when you, know, when you have got a million points, data points in a spreadsheet, uh, it's not easy to keep track of things. Yeah, very very soon you end up with dozens and dozens of graphs and can't remember which one was was the interesting one or how how you actually produced it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I think this is like, maybe a, a bit of where the magic happens. So you, you have to drill re- all the way down and break it apart. And then I I think when it comes to having an insight, sometimes so okay, fortune does favor the prepared mind in these contexts, when you know what you're looking at, not necessarily what you're looking for, because this is where you're trying to make a, a discovery. You have a hunch maybe sometimes and other times, as you say, you have this surprising set of information that shows you something that you hadn't ever thought to ask. But, I, you know, I guess this, there has to be some magic making in this process as well or the, the serendipity factor of science, which you know, the famous stories of getting in the bath and seeing the water displace or the apple falling from the tree. Do you buy into that as well, that there is ser- there is a magic moment or there is a serendipity factor in helping reveal scientific insights?
0: Yeah, maybe in, in a somewhat tempered way. I think, you know, to some extent we, we make our, our luck, we make our own luck, but absolutely serendipity plays a role. I mean, I, I only ended up in Antarctica because I met the guy who had been working there already for 20 years 25 years on a, another field expedition in Kamchatka in, mm-hmm. the, in the far east of Russia uh, wow. and that that, yeah. e- that that encounter you know it, it led to some years later to talking about um, the possibility of me joining on on his expedition and it finally came about as well because of work that that I'd been doing um, working with very miniaturized ultraviolet spectrometers to measure Gas emissions, so a new a new uh, technology that he was interested in. So you know, it could very easily, I could, I hadn't gone on that trip to Kamchatka, I'd probably never have ended up working in Antarctica. So yeah, I think I think there's a bit of both, um, both the the preparation that we do and and uh, the the work we do and and uh, and so on. But yes, with all kinds of chance factors thrown in.
1: It, well, you also raise a point there as well. It's like. It's not necessarily drilling into the data or finding out more. It's it's meeting new people as well. So, I know that um, I ended up being on a, f- a delayed flight back from Australia um, after being on business, and we're flying back from. We had to stay over in Singapore, and I was sat next to the guy on the plane, and we ended up having like a drink together and a chat, and he told me about his life as an expat in Asia, and it's what convinced me that moving to the States would be a great idea. So I got home, told my husband and told David and, you know, six months later we were in New York city. So you don't know necessarily where and if you're ever going to meet someone who could essentially give you an insight or a perspective that may well just change your life for in a positive way. I guess that leads me to another question because you, you mentioned Peter Francis at the beginning, his his textbook on volcanoes, and he became your PhD advisor. And I think, I think again, going back to that Wired article I read, you talked about your relationship with Peter and how he um, was influential and challenged you a lot when you were going through that PhD process. So would you mind sharing a little bit more about that um that relationship and how it helps shape your like who you are and your approach to volcanology.
0: Yes, I think I, I'd not really encountered someone like Peter before. He he wasn't someone that everyone got on well with. He would be. I, I would say it was a very sort of Socratic kind of way he mentored me. You know, and and anything I suggested or proposed, you know, why? Well, why do you think that? And then I would give some answer, and he was, well, yes, but but why? And he he would just play this um but by, why 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 until you get to the point where you say i i don't know <laughs> it's it's just what, <laughs> what i thought and i I'd, I'd never been in that kind of a situation so i think that was you know it was, it was really good being challenged in that way because you have to think about your assumptions you can't just sort of make some assumptions and then forget that they were only assumptions all along and then reach some conclusion and and you've forgotten you know the shaky foundations that you've built it on. So yeah, we and we got on very you know very well. I didn't um, I didn't meet Peter until about a year into my PhD because he spent a lot of sort of extended sabbatical time uh, and leave he had a lot of leave from the university and he he was in the states a lot. And so in fact, I I first met him at my first big international conference that I went to as a PhD student, uh, which was in in the states. And I, I went and founded him. I, I, it was like, you know, Dr. Livingstone, I presume. I said you, you don't know me, but I'm your PhD student. Yeah, we 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 got on very well. We worked continued collaborating after I finished my PhD. And we did a lot of field work together, really enjoyed each other's company and I think worked you know, worked very well together collaboratively. Um Peter, you know, and we mentioned Peter's book earlier on, Peter's Volcano's book was Actually, switched an awful lot of people onto in, onto the subject. He had a real gift for writing and communicating. So, yeah, he he un, unquestionably p- played a very a very important role in my career in, in in my early career. And and I think another thing was, you know, he was he was always a pioneer. He he was one of the first to recognise that satellites could tell us an awful lot about volcanoes. It could be used to map remote volcanoes in in the Central Andes where it's very difficult to do field work, but the images are almost like geological maps because there's so little vegetation. He was one of the first to recognise you could measure temperatures on volcanoes from space.
1: I bring this up because often when you see like an artist or a movie maker or what have you, or someone who's like heralded as like obviously creative, they, they talk about that individual's creative approach and process. And people talk about muses as well and what inspires them to create but there's also the mentor factor and having that voice in your head of someone who um inspires but also challenges you um and because i know as i go through creative processes i have my mentor's voice in my mind um and my problem is always that i have lovely ideas but no structure (laughs) So I guess it's like having great assumptions with no foundations. Um, so, you, you know, I just, I wanted to, to bring that up and, and ask, like, just is his voice still in your head when you're doing your studies? Have you just forever never been able to get a self away from, you know, being asking yourself why all the time? And, um, and you know, has his pioneering spirit captured you and shaped how you go about your work? Um, yes, I think I think
0: um I'm sure it has. Yes, yeah. I mean I, I should say he, you know, he he died he died uh, uh more than twenty years ago. But yes, yeah, certainly his whole approach you know, had, had a huge impact on me. And I going back to reading his his book before I went to university, I mean one one of the things I was really captivated by, he he'd worked a lot in in, in the Central Andes, you know, very, very remote terrains, extraordinary landscapes. Um he'd worked in in sudan you know he'd, he'd worked in dunfield working unusual places and there were photographs and I, I was very even though they were just small black and white photographs you know there was something very um captivating about the, the sort of exoticism of some of these locations uh and i've i've certainly sought that out uh i would, I would say you know my subsequent career work, worked in the in the sahara in in deserts in in uh, the danical desert depression in ethiopia eritrea um, going to antarctica so yes i think um I, I i am i am part of peter's legacy and uh yeah he, he he's i'm sure sort of deep down there he's still he's still part part of the inspiration to me and and in writing i guess you know not not many scientists come naturally to writing peter peter had a remarkable gift for it and that, that's something that, that, that's always impressed me and uh I think again was was an, an inspiration to to enjoy writing and not find it a a chore.
1: You I don't know, you talk about um, again in a very enriched QA Wired article, which honestly I recommend people should read. <laughs> um, yeah, but the you talk about the power of writing and that you have a, a passion for it yourself and writing down notes of what you've seen and, and what interests you and I guess it, this is the perfect segue into talking about your book because you produced what's about 10 years ago your book eruptions um, that shook the world uh, which I guess is on the side when when you talked at the very beginning of this conversation you talked about that you studied volcanic behavior but also um, past volcanoes and and it's Impact on civilization and and climate. So I guess this book sits on that side of the house. Could could you share the inspiration for the book and where it hit and how did it change your approach to your studies at all? Uh, it it
0: had a big influence on the direction of my studies. So I I first conceived the book when I I think I was still a maybe even still a postdoc or I just just started lecturing and. I think it was partly inspired, so I'd, I'd come back to Cambridge as a postdoc after doing my PhD at the Open University, and there was a series of seminars on human origins, and it was a very exciting time because of uh, genetic studies revealing all sorts of extraordinary things about human ancestry. And this, of course, you know, had a big focus in East Africa, where, where so many of the, the human fossils, the ancient human fossils come from. And I, I was also w- already very interested in that that area. I traveled in in Ethiopia and I'd done field work out there. And I think I just, I, I got really quite um, uh, captivated in this idea that, that human origins were in a very volcanically and tectonically active part of the world and that our ancestors were u- using volcanic terrains and volcanic resources, volcanic rocks for, you know, to support their livelihoods. And so, you know, at that time, I... I conceived the book, which was you know, very much about the impacts volcanoes have. Uh, this is also after the Pinatuba eruption, sometime after the eruption in 1991 of Mount Pinatuba in the Philippines, which was really the first to very clearly demonstrate the impact volcanoes have on climate, on global climate. And so this was something as well, because I was getting interested in volcanic gases at this time. This all kind of came together for me to to think about large eruptions of the past and the the role that they've played in in human history and prehistory uh so so i scoped out you know i scoped out a, a pitch for the book um and the inception of the project was at the time as i say when i was just starting my careers you know on faculty and suddenly i had all kinds of new responsibilities teaching examining administration and so on and and also you know having phd students to supervise and you know, also building up my my research career, so it wasn't a good time really to to sit down and write a book. And I made you know I made some progress quite early on with a, a few chapters, but I just didn't have time to finish the book. This is now sort of into the the two thousands.
1: Well, it took twenty years, right? <laughs> if uh, From concept, not quite. Not or... quite that long.
0: No, probably probably about a dozen years, but it. So it you know it had a, certainly had a slow burn as a project, but those chapters you know which took me into climatic impacts, into sort of potential that volcanoes changed historical trajectories, it took me in, in the, that direction, and so that ended up it, it did end up shaping my my research. It led to some opportunities to work, for example, on the eruption of Toba seventy four thousand years ago in Sumatra uh, and the impacts that may or may not have had on. Uh, human populations at the time. It led me to doing field work with archaeologists in India. So, the, the book and what I planned to do in, in the book did start to shape my career. And so, you know, I did end up with these kind of two parallel domains that I'm interested in. And, uh, you know, ultimately got to the point where I said, I've, you know, I've either got to finish this book or or just jettison it. Uh, so, <laughs> I ended up getting some leave from the university and I, I spent that in Orleans, uh, as, uh, where you discovered the um, the. The yogurt the yogurt and, the the uh, and that's that's why i hold up and finished finish the book and i say another thing about the book it you know as a, an academic um well so, certainly in my field books textbooks have limited academic currency you're judged by your primary research articles so you know although to, there was some primary research in this it's you know it's largely a synthesis you know if i'd done it five years earlier it would have been something people would have looked down their noses at it oh you know why are you wasting your time on this rather than uh, actually, going out and doing some real research, um, but what's changed is, is the impact agenda. And and actually, you know, I think the the book uh, for me was one of the best things that I ever did because it um, it did define a whole part of my research career, uh, which continues to this day. And and I'd I'd also been pitching it as a, a documentary from from the start, and and ultimately. It it did, you know, form the basis for the the film Into the Inferno. So it opened up it opened up all kinds of uh, new avenues for me, and uh, you know, it, it was it was very worthwhile.
1: If we look at this again with the natural born thinking mindset, there's so much interesting stuff in in there from that perspective, and also your your adventures in writing the book. Because sometimes I think people can have an idea, and you know, they have it. It sits with them, they're passionate about it. There is this time factor that gets in the way, as you said, for yourself, like it was just not the time for you to embark on this creative project. But you you had it in your mind, and you turned it into you know it never left you. It, it shaped your approach. It shaped your adventure and journey, I guess, into to what you did. So it became part of your life. Your creative project came part of your life, and then at some point, at some moment, there was no necess- there was no pressure necessarily until you got to I guess twelve years down the line when you thought, okay, right, twelve years in now is the time for me to make a choice. And, and you did, you found yourself that, you bought yourself that time, you're in a different situation then, perhaps with more information to write an even better book, and um, you also, you know, as you said, were a bit maverick in, in how you did it as well, and that you, you know, you weren't playing to anyone else's rule book, and what you should or shouldn't write, you went for what you believed in, and what you wanted to do, and what you felt would make an impact, and I think there's a lot of insights and you know it's inspiring for people i guess who are starting a creative project that it's okay that you can have an idea doesn't have to be done in a day where we just live in a society now or in corporations where it's like you know this should have been done yesterday you know there is benefit of leaving something hanging out there and seeing what new opportunities it opens up just having that in your mind you know it's also okay to be pioneering in what you put out there
0: i I think it's uh you know this. There's, there's got to be some balance, you know. You can't taking on a project that you never finish is obviously not uh, not ideal. But I think you know, when I do approach something like writing a, a book or uh, in filmmaking, I mean th- these these are these are big opportunities. These are not things to do in a slapdash way or a sloppy way. In the time that you've got available and within the constraints of everything else that might be on your plate, you have to give it your all. Um, you have to make it the best it can possibly be with with the resources that that you have, you know, your own intellectual resources and, and what you can get hold of. It's not worth, you know, being, yes, being sloppy about it.
1: know, it's having, having a sense of purpose. I guess I've always, when I was like, a, I guess 10 years ago, I knew I wanted to be an innovation facilitator. And it wasn't a... a um, an opportunity that was immediately available to me because I didn't necessarily, I had the creative intellectual capacity, but, you know, I had no evidence of it in the work that I was doing, but that shaped my direction and trajectory and what I chose to get involved in over subsequent years. And eventually that's where, where I ended up and, you And that's, you know, I found I found what I was passionate about, and I and I made my moment, if if that if you will, but it it does take time, and you have to be purposeful about it too. Um, and yeah, sometimes that means you have to make sideways moves or, or do something that perhaps you're not as as passionate about. Um, but it all, if you endure and, and endure it and and make it work for you, it can lead in a great place and. You know, you would, I guess this does bring us now to, to your movie because you you said you'd initially had this idea when you had the book that you would like it to be a documentary, a film documentary. But had you ever imagined that it would be, well, did you have an idea of who you wanted to produce the movie or direct the movie at the time that you had the, the, the idea for the book?
0: Well, my immediate um, thought was the you know BBC and I, I did approach them actually on more than one occasion and, and both times, you know, they, they sounded interesting, but it interested, but it, it, it never got past a commissioning editor. I talked to assorted um, smaller independent TV production documentary companies. Again, you know, they would get very interested, but uh, it, it never got any head of steam. So yeah, I certainly wasn't, you know, I, I at that time I was thinking of, I guess, you know, a, a much more conventional made for TV format and you know, talking about serendipity was a, that all those approaches didn't pay off and that uh, you know, I ended up, um, so I, I, when I finally finished the book, I sent Werner Herzog a copy. I'd met Werner when he was making a film in Antarctica. He was in our field camp on Erebus for a week. And that's where our friendship began. I sent him a copy of the book and I, I said, let, you know, what do you think about um, uh, turning this into a film? And this this opened you know opened a, the possibility of a completely different genre of documentary. You know this this is not scripted for TV. There there were you know, no there were no uh, constraints on having to have cliffhangers every fifteen minutes for commercial breaks. You know so it it, it completely freed up the way the way we could make this this film. And that um, you know I, again obviously this this has been. Uh, had a major change of direction for me to to get in, into filmmaking. So we've just just had the premiere of our our second film, uh, which is all about meteorites.
1: Excuse me for being ignorant on this one, but is I can see a, a leap from a scientist to like a documentary maker that makes sense, but a scientist to like Hollywood movie design, not once but twice, um, seems not such a common leap for a scientist to make necessarily. I don't I mean, maybe, as I say, excuse my ignorance on this one. <laughs> um is that true? <laughs> I would
0: think, you know, the, the opportunities don't come present themselves very often. I, I guess, you know, I'm sure there are, you know, there are scientists who've who've written books that have inspired big budget films. Um individual scientists of course are are, are profiled. So yes, but it's I I guess you know it's it's not common. Um
1: but- what's what scared and excited you about this adventure because it's obviously completely different to you, you know being an upper volcano taking measurements and readings and going through graphs and looking for insights like this is I guess creativity in what people perceive to be one of its most obvious forms in movie design so can you talk a little bit about your entry into that world and was it scary or did you feel prepared uh
0: yeah i don't i don't think i would ever i don't think i could i could say i've ever it's presented me with fear i would i would sort of in some ways trace its origins back to the year that i met werner herzog in antarctica this is in 2006 um and not not just because i met him but at that time i i had just started collaborating with an italian artist and photographer by the name of armin linker and uh, we worked together on a video installation. I, I, I was taking the um, collecting the film for this on on my field work. And it's it's why actually I had a, I ended up training my camera on, on Werner for a, a conversation we had at the edge of the crater, part of which is shown in, in the film Into the Inferno. And working you know, I, I subsequently worked um, I joined Armin in, in Italy a couple of times for the editing. Uh, we were talking and talked about the music for it, and it was a real eye opener for me because it made me realize that uh, you know, although the scientific work I, I do, you know, you, you you could say it's creative. I don't think it was fully satisfying me in terms of making me feel creative. Most of what I've done is is pretty, you know, it's it's incremental. So working on that project, it I guess it you know reminded me of a a time in my uh, teens and twenties and when, when I did play a lot of music and uh, did a lot of photography, it uh, yeah, it, I think it kind of reignited a, a creative urge that had been um, buried by building a career as an academic. So in that sense, I think I was receptive to then work, collaborate with Werner that our first film into the inferno on volcanoes was, I mean, it, it was a tremendous amount of work, but it it didn't require an awful lot of, uh, you know, new research for me because all the locations, were places I worked, many of the people that we had conversations with were uh, people that I knew or colleagues. So it, it it was it was fairly clear to me, you know, how, how that would all work. Our latest film, which is called Fireball: Visitors from Darker Worlds, was a bigger challenge for me because you know I, I took on many aspects you know really of, of the production kind of yeah pretty much every, everything sort of involved in it from uh the you know the initial concept obviously having to do a lot more research because this is not my field uh casting to find people that we would talk with on camera uh locations also uh recruiting crew uh so speaking with cinematographers uh basically interviewing them um and then obviously through to the production, and then into post-production, the, the editing, and uh, it's it's been you know three years now since the initial concept to the point that it's uh, it's just been premiered, uh, and it's it's been a, a tremendous amount of work, uh, very very challenging and you know, incredibly engaging. But, uh, so probably the most challenging thing I've ever done professionally.
1: There's, there's, a, there's something interesting in that because um, it's true when you do know an environment well or you know your subject really well, it's really easy to play with it in new ways because you're comfortable with it. And I think sometimes, I guess you can go either a couple of ways. When you're really comfortable with something, you can just get stuck in a rut and stay in, in that mindset with it. Or if you're comfortable with something and you have the energy to like play with it or you want to disrupt it a little um, it's easier to to play with the variables because you know what you've got and you can more easily start to see things in different ways I, I guess you as i say you can either go either way you can get too comfortable and can't see out so maybe into the inferno it sounds as though this was you you had more of that that playful energy because you you knew what you had and you were you had confidence in your knowledge, essentially, like the science and the environment were very known to you. So then you got to play with the other parts. But then when you come into doing Fireball, you know, that confidence of having the data set and the knowledge and that you had on a previous one perhaps isn't there now, which might make, I mean, the the creative challenge all the more challenging because you're having to work much more in the guts of it. Does does that make sense? Does does that resonate? And do you think that might be why this one was more challenging for you?
0: Uh, I, I think it was you know it was more challenging because I, I I was really involved in in every aspect of it, and you know it, it's a collaborative effort, of course, with with Werner Herzog. So you know it, it involves. A, an awful lot of uh, discussion and uh, and deliberation as well in sort of act- actually you know finishing off off the, the the project. I don't you know in some ways I don't think it going into it uh, into an area that was less known to me was was problematic. I I knew very early on from just sort of, you know the initial research I knew I knew this would be a really fascinating topic. And both both films, you know, they're they're not science films. They're about the entanglements of nature and culture. You know, very, very early on, I kind of you know could imagine how the film would start and end. And uh, I, I did I did a lot of research for it. I you know I read a lot. I could you know understand the basics of a lot of the the geological literature on on meteorites. You know, it's not my field, but I you know I, I could get the gist of what's going on. But it also led me to. Quite different fields like archaeoastronomy, how, how cultures around the world have, have perceived the night sky, uh, how they've navigated, and so on. So you know it was very fascinating reading, and I think you know once once you have um, once you've read a lot, you've you know you're prepared, you're kind of prepared for about anything. And um, it's 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 very then it's it's very fascinating how you start with an initial concept for the film. Maybe one of the locations you you end up swapping it with somewhere else, so you know things evolve. But it's 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 very interesting how you you have to um, have in mind all the time the concept for the whole movie, but while you're working on a on a very minute part of it. Yeah,
1: so not getting lost in the detail as you're bringing the, the bigger idea together.
0: Yeah, although you know the detail in. A, I think this is again sort of one of the things I I would say you know differentiates there are many things that differentiate uh, the kind of films that we've made from let's say horizon or nova discovery type documentary um you know they're, they're much freer from constraints that they're, they're unscripted so it opens up the possibility to to go into the detail uh, to take to take something that is actually very a very very esoteric point i mean we and we do this in uh, in, in the new film, for instance, uh, we, we look at the topic of quasi crystals. Again, you know, if, if you if you dig in, if you talk with the right people, what, what you end up revealing is is the joy of science, the joy of discovery, uh, and the, the awe and wonder of the cosmos.
1: You know, Clive, I love that that phrase there. You say that the joy of discovery, the joy of science, and and it's really clear through the conversation that we've been having that that's I think that's just been something that seems from from talking with each other that that's been at the heart of everything that you've done, that your kind of insatiable curiosity to discover more, and your observancy, and your purposeful approach to the work you do, and you know, having the vision behind your ideas and and pursuing that, and yes, you've had serendipitous meetings, but definitely very much again, you know, fortune favoring the the prepared. And I think there's a lot of insights that we've had from this as we've through as we have been talking about it from the natural born thinking lens as well. But I guess I do have one I guess big climactic question for you which is you've shown also through this conversation that you're not just looking at things linearly like a lot of the secret to your success has been opening yourself up to new worlds and combining the information sets and the individuals who live in those worlds to open up new insights and um, you've been exploring um, humanity and how that's been shaped and how climate's been shaped by volcanoes. Are there any big insights that you've learned about humans' ability to adapt to change created by nature that are lessons that we all should be focusing in on now in this moment as we live with you, you know, one of the biggest changes, I think, that's happened in, in many people's lifetimes.
0: Well, I, th- I think probably the work that I've done with historians and looking into into history is, is instructive of how humans do adapt to change. I mean, you know, we, we are still here and we, we've been through some very rough times. I think there are two things there. You know, one, one is the fact that we are still here, we are resilient the other is that we uh, we we do kind of live in the moment, and we I don't I don't know why you know the, the situation with with COVID is is no surprise. I mean, there's there's no reason to think that uh, uh, the Spanish flu was going to be the last you know, global pandemic, uh, and of course we've had MERS and SARS. There's no reason to think just because we're modern, the most modern people have ever been, that we're not going to have uh, conflict and and famine and uh, and other kind of calamities that we'll have to face this is all in our history you know in our in the last generations even and and obviously going back o- over the centuries the, there are lessons there for the for the kind of animal we are and and the way we behave as a society so you know that they're, they're they're not great lessons uh, or they're not they're not uh, wonderful things to look into but you know it's it's staring us in the face that we're a species that's very, very capable of of changing our, our our environment to our own detriment. We're a species very capable of horrors and, and conflict. I, I don't know what it takes. Um, we might adapt to that, but it would be nice if we actually learned from it and did things differently.
1: I couldn't agree more. I think the other thing from history is that we, we have, we're very adaptable and have this power to create and you know that's by you know bringing information in if we learn from from yourself and what you've been telling us on this course taking information in and and being open to asking new questions and seeking new answers so just i think a, a big message is obviously we have the from from this and from what i'm learning is that we do as humanity we are resilient but we have the power to change and we have this amazing power to open our, our eyes to new possibilities. And by collaborating, we have the, the power to to create something that will help everybody. <laughs> um, so uh, this this podcast has been hugely um, interesting, Clive. Hopefully uh, you've enjoyed the conversation and I, I don't know if there are any other final thoughts that you'd like to share um, with our listeners. Uh,
0: well, thank, thank you so much, Sam, it has, has been lovely talking with you. I guess just one you know, one thing maybe uh, still in my head after we were talking about Peter Francis and uh, mentoring. I think it's really, really valuable to to listen to people, really valuable to listen to advice. I think it's perfectly fine to be headstrong uh, and ignore that advice, but I think it's um, it's always worth listening to other people's opinions and, and weigh, weighing it up.
1: Yes. I, well, I I've, I find as I get older that I mean you said that I'm starting to look more like my mum, <laughs> but I'm also starting to sound more like my dad. Which is my dad said the great thing about advice is you can choose to to take it. But I would add to that, which is the great thing about advice is is that you can look at it. Um, like objectively and and choose <laughs> which what you want to take from it. So I think it is a really important point as people start to think about their next adventures. Um, you don't have to go it alone. You can um, find someone to give you some perspective and, and that might just help take you where you want to go. Thank you so much. People should definitely watch Into the Inferno if they haven't already. I've watched it twice. And um, it, when will Fireball be available to people
0: it's on Apple TV+.
1: Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Clive. And um, I'll look forward to watching Fireball.
0: Thanks again, Sam.
1: Thank you for listening to the Natural Born Thinkers podcast. More information about today's guest and any of the resources shared during a conversation can be found in the podcast show notes. To find out more about Natural Born Thinkers, please visit the Natural Born Thinkers website and follow us on Instagram at Thinkers. Today's show was produced by Force9 Audio and podcast graphics were designed by Carl Gamble. Natural Born Thinkers is at the beginning of its journey and thank you for joining us on this adventure. Until the next time.